outfits one day. They're going to work it out so that we don't even get a microphone here in the studio. Idiotic. Hey, thank you. Thank you. Bring it up there, Big Charles. Have they turned the transmitter on? <laughs> it's the second time this month. Look at how they're making Cheap jack. Oh, are we on the air? Oh, hello, everybody out there. It's certainly good to see all of you. Idiots. Names. Groups. We're on old AM. When does the mix switch come? You know what they call AM, don't you, in the business? Antique modulation. The antiquarians media. That's really what they do. That's what they call it, you know. On handbag. I missed the 4th of July. Hi, George. Hey, uh, would you please... Yeah, yeah. No, no, Lee. Would you run down there quickly, and you'll find on my desk, if you will... No, don't, 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 don't look bugged. You listen. Now, down there on the desk, there is a piece about Philadelphia and its 4th of July fiasco. You'll find it also there with a picture about it. Hurry. Scoot. No, I missed the 4th of July. One of the great things about the 4th of July is that nobody ever listens to the radio. And you can come on, you can do stuff you can't do any other time of the year. There are two, there are two holidays. Yeah, that, oh yes, no, believe me. That the minute you start getting people listening to you, in any form, when you start writing, you start doing tap dances, or you become a politician, then you have to play upon the chords of human compassion and human fantasy. When well, you do, yes sir. Uh, you have to start saying everything's gonna be alright. In one way, shape, or form, or another. And that one of the things I like about being on the air on Christmas or on New Year's or particularly really big holidays when everybody goes vaguely ape and doesn't show up and they, everything shuts off, the world stops. Do you know the holiday concept itself is fascinating? I mean, just the idea of a holiday, that they find the holiday concept is a thing which is very operative among the most primitive of tribes. And as a matter of fact, the more primitive the tribe, the more holidays it generally has. You know this? Yeah, think about it for a minute. Oh, some tribes have been on a holiday since late in the Third Ice Age. And uh, they find every day to celebrate something, you know, a big celebration. Celebrate the time the branch fell on Og. The great, you know, tribal chief, and they celebrate that. Then they celebrate the time somebody picked the branch up off of Og, and that's called the Branch Removal Day, and they celebrate that by eating drumsticks or beating on their wives' heads or something. It's all kinds of ritual. You know, rituals are very important, and, and uh, since the 4th of July is a big holiday for us, that's why I like being on the radio the 4th, because nobody hears you. You can say all kinds of stuff. I'll, I'll, I'll warrant, I'll guarantee you that there isn't one out of 500 people listening tonight who heard our show last night or even knew it was on. 
or even knew that radio continued, which is great, fantastic, fantastic, which which uh, I, I I enjoyed. As a matter of fact, uh, that's also the uh, the value of being on late at night too. Uh, one of the good things about being there's a myth in, among radio that people only listen in the morning <laughs> when these dynamic, hard-hitting guys so relentlessly and fearlessly give you the time. And they never chicken out about the weather. They come out real truthfully about it. They just lay it out. It's truthful, dynamic, hard-hitting radio. Of course, late at night, you can just go on and on. Uh, in fact, I remember this uh, discovering this principle one time. Have you noticed that there's, a, there's, a, there's definitely a, uh, a two-pronged, how shall I put it, a double standard would be a better way to put it, a two-pronged morality that has to do with a be careful. That's a loaded word. I, I understand that they're planning a uh, a remake of the ten, you know, the the Ten Commandments, and of course it's in keeping with the new drive-in philosophy, which you have to watch a movie through the rain and through a lot of beer cans and stuff all the time, and so yeah, they're tailoring movies now to drive-ins. They're no longer tailoring them to, to theaters. Has it occurred to you that most of the movies now that, that are really making it big are really reworkings of old Walt Disney cartoon plots? No, seriously, think about it for a minute. No, I'm very serious. That the cartoon plot of, uh, let's say, uh, Mickey Mouse, or even say, uh, what was the name of that rabbit that all, uh, was always in, in the movies? You remember that great rabbit that made, made the scene big? Yeah, Bugs Bunny, that's it. He was a fantastic movie star. He was up for an Oscar, you know, twice. But, you know, politics, and there's a lot of racial uh, biases against rabbits. And, uh, oh, yeah, chipmunks go further than rabbits do in a lot of ways. However, uh, you, you recall those, those fantastic plots of Bugs Bunny, or there was a raven, too, that was always sitting around on a branch and hollering at people. Do you remember that one? Two ravens, actually, I think it was. Uh, yeah, these are all great uh, favorites of my my formative years when I formed my concept for plot structure and storytelling. And uh, tension, you got to build tension into a story. You know, the, the forces, two forces are approaching one another relentlessly. Evil and good, you see, are coming together there. And the drama consists of which will win. Now, we know which one will win, of course. But it's how he wins. Yes, I understand. I see that. That's why I'm doing this special program tonight. That it's how he wins that makes all the difference in the world. Now, uh, I, I'm sitting there watching this fantastically awful movie scene. And these guys are running around. They're jumping in and out of cars and flying out of windows. And, you know, the whole thing, uh, the, the, they're shooting each other, hitting each other with, with uh, pig bladders and stuff. And the chicks are involved. And, I, and I'm, I'm being nagged by a sense of recurring familiarity. I have seen this before. And yet it's a dynamic, hard-hitting picture that hasn't even been released yet. No, I, I can't have possibly have seen it before. And about the third or fourth reel, and I find that, that in general, the more that the uh, film people are working the cute shtick, you know, there's a new business called the cute shtick, in which practically everything is a takeoff on something else. Well, the trouble is that when you have seen the third takeoff, and takeoffs begin to be takeoffs on a movie which was a takeoff on another movie, which was originally conceived as a burlesque or a farce, it's getting pretty rarefied. It's like counting the number of angels that danced on the head of Peter Sellers' stick pin. Uh, hey, that's pretty good. Hi, <laughs> George. <laughs> a little philosophical funny there, didn't I? But uh, nevertheless, it gets, gets, you know, gets pretty rarefied. And I find they are tremendous soporifics. 
I find that about the third reel of a James Bond movie, it starts with my left foot. It starts, to, yeah, it starts, you know, I feel that little prickly feeling all up and down the feet and the calf, and my knee starts going to sleep. The next thing you know, I'm immobile. And the only thing that keeps me going are the licorice, uh, the little uh, root beer babies that I take to movies often. And once in a while, I play with them, and I line them up on the chair next to me, and I talk to them. And, you know, I try to keep up a semblance of human relationship. And it's not very easy when you're watching a James Garner movie. He's painted orange, you know, and he's running around chasing Doris Day, and they're both pretending they're 18, which is not easy to do. I mean, consider, you know, with the problems that are evident on the wide screen, it's very hard to do a lot of these things, and I appreciate that. It's just the way I, the way I appreciate a good tightrope walker. Well, I know it's not easy to do that, you know, 400 feet up in the air, tightrope walking on that thing with six inches of water in it. It's about as hard as to watch Doris Day playing 18. That's very hard. It's not easy. It's dangerous. You can, the, the thin line between credibility and laughability is a very thin one. And the other night, I'm in a Joseph Levine movie, and they are laughing. I'll tell you, that is a legend, that picture already. <laughs> that ain't the kind that Mr. Levine thought it would be. However, maybe he did. I thought that the Oscar was a gigantic put-on, the worst movie ever made. Uh, but then he topped it. And so, you know, you, 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 can never, you can never figure tomorrow's disaster, basing it on yesterday's fiasco, that the, it's ever upward. Has it occurred to you that progress is made even in the bad sense? That, that we like to think, you know, of things get better. Well, things, things that are worse also get worser. You see, that's a the converse rule. There's a Newtonian law. The inverse, for every action, there's a reaction. So for every move forward, there is a giant move backward on another front, you see. And so if you try to make sense of Steve McQueen's acting, you'll understand what I mean. It's not easy. Uh, I'm forever blowing bubbles. Well, however, <laughs> you know, you got, got to get involved. You got to get involved in this, this thing of familiarity. See, and I'm sitting there in this movie, and I got my little root beer babies marching up and down the seat in front of me, and... Uh, once in a while, I hear a high-pitched giggle, and I recognize that I'm in an in-high-camp uh, evening. I'm in for one of those very good, you know, oh, 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 that's a high-camp laugh. That means that, you know, you make a, you make a reference to Truffaut or Jonas Mekis. That means you really know what the movies are about. You really know what life is about, beauty and truth and 35 millimeter and all that stuff, you know. And so I'm sitting in the middle of all this, this going on there with my root beer babies and uh, actually, the root beer barrels is what I take with me. I take root beer barrels, and I take juju babies. They're two different things. I don't want to confuse any racial issues here. And I'm, I'm sitting there, and I'm watching this fiasco in front of me, and, I, and I've, I've been bugged by a sense, a recurring sense of familiarity, and I suddenly realize what it is. Would you please bring that little sad personal tragedy music there, please? Oh, that's magnificent. That is just right. Yes, indeed. Oh, woe is me. I guess. But on the other hand, stop right there. They go into another theme there, which we don't need. That's personal tragedy music. And I'm sitting there. See, I have shelled out $2 and a half for this clinker. And about halfway through the third reel, I realize that I have seen it before. This is the same plot that Bugs Bunny had. In at least 4,000 movies, you know, when that big tough dog would show up with the stainless steel teeth 
and the dog would hit Bugs, and Bugs would fly through the building and make the shape of Bugs Bunny going through the building, you know, like a cookie cut out. You remember that? And then Bugs would go up the steeple and hit the thing and the gong, and the big weight would come down and hit the big dog and all that stuff. Same plot. James Bond. Same scene. And it was always a beautiful cat that he was in love with or something like that. Uh, uh, Ursula Andrews. And exactly the same credibility. I'm serious. That, that what I, and I have a theory now that we adults who grew up digging the most important thing of all that we dug, uh, personally, the, the thing that I really went for all the time when I would go to the movies as a kid was the cartoon. I mean, I really did. That was the big moment when Bugs Bunny would show up. And, uh, you know, the, the, what was the one? There was a, some kind of a parrot or something that ran around. Remember that thing with the big red crest? What was his name? Uh, Woody Woodpecker. Uh, 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 yeah, that's right. See, I, 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 I got my antecedents correct here. Oh, when my... That's the trouble, you know. That when, when you, you, you can never be an important writer unless you have important symbols to work with. I'm serious. You know, I mean, it was easy to be James Joyce. He had the decline and fall of the British Empire. He had the he had the decay of Irish life and the struggle against uh, tyranny and the whole thing. What are you going to do when your only your only symbolic antecedent is Bugs Bunny and Woody Woodpecker, and not to mention Johnny Weissmuller? And uh, you know, uh, and that, that was that is that those are the American symbols, you see. And so, yeah, you wake up uh, an American at three o'clock in the morning. He's not able to say, "That's all, folks." It's the only thing you can think of, because he saw it a million times in his life, and it's engraved in his life. It's tattooed on his soul. Well, all right, don't laugh. A hundred and fifty, maybe five hundred years from now, Bugs Bunny could be a classic example of tragedy. I doubt whether much where these guys are sitting around in the in the theater in Athens, and they saw Electra show up for the first time. This guy wrote this play, see, and somebody thought it was about Con Ed or something. And uh, they're sitting there, and it comes on. It's Electra. Where do you think they got the word electricity? Smart guy. Electricity did come from Electra. And why? Well, if you have ever run into a chick who was anything like Electra, you'll understand why they named electricity after Electra. I'll tell you this. Well, I've dated a couple of Electras in my time. <laughs> Hi, George Rooney. <laughs> yeah, well, a couple of Carmens, too. But nevertheless, uh, when you, when you, you know, uh, were these people sitting around in the, in the theater there in, in Rome and they saw Electra for the first time? Did they know that it was a classic? No. I mean, you know, they thought Orestes was kind of a weak character. You know, they thought it was kind of rotten for Euripides to write all this stuff about the queen. But outside of that, it wasn't considered a classic. Everybody went. They bought tickets, first-night tickets. It took a long time for us to come come along. You know, so it's a fantastic tragedy. Well, Bugs Bunny could be just as classic 500 years from. They could be running these off, you know, in, in, uh, in uh, philosophy classes. Tells a lot about our time. Because this is the stuff that people went ape over, you know, in, in, the, in the 20th century. Sure, you sat there. It was the totally without totally without any self-consciousness. You know, Bugs would come out there and he'd hit somebody in the head. They'd hit him on the head. He'd run around. And you notice in Bugs Bunny, almost invariably evil would triumph over good? It was a watchdog he beat. Remember that. And Bugs was out to steal the carrots. Remember that, friends. So, uh, <laughs> you see, in the serious movies, good one, or what ostensibly passed for good. 
Sure. I mean, in the end, Jimmy Cagney always won if he was a good guy. I mean, if he was playing a bad guy in the movie, he had a black hand and he got plugged. But he got plugged with style in the end, you see. And Spencer Tracy would, would look down and say, well, I'm sorry, Chief. I'm really sorry. And uh, Cagney would die. But we know the good triumph. That was for the adults. Well, the kids would sit there and watch that crummy woodpecker. That was a rotten woodpecker. Did you ever see that woodpecker? Listen, he had a soul that was withered and shriveled. He was a rotten one. And, and I keep remembering that, that the, yeah, it, you, there were a couple of uh, cartoons that never made it because good always triumphed. Mighty Mouse. Ah, kid stuff. Mighty Mouse. No, that never made it, you know. Mighty Mouse never made it at all. It only made it when people write camp stories about it. But the stuff that really went over was when Woody Woodpecker would show up on the screen and you knew this crummy little rotten bird, this decadent little bird, this evil bird that was sitting always up and yelling and screaming, hurling obscenities. Well, the way he did it, of course, you'd go, and you didn't know what he was saying, but you could imagine what he was saying. The way, brother, look in the eye, you know, he'd hurl these things up. He won in the end. Did you notice that? Okay. Speaking of that, oh, that, this is WORAM at FM, New York. Hit our, hit our wine spot. After having slaved for years to make a Cinzano Vermouth, our people... Our beloved people, their feet purple from jumping on the grapes. Their eyes cross a hide from soaring herbs. Just such a... I, I, I put considerable research into this. Now, 87 million people, I'm sure, at least, drove up to a a toll gate last night and, and plunked the quarter. And, you know, the little thing says, throw in the quarter. It says, do not miss. It says, do not get out of the car. You know why they tell you don't come out of the, uh, out of the car? You know, you know so the, the basket there? That plastic basket, it's got a target painted on it. And you throw the quarter at the target. Now, what happens when you miss that target? It bounces, and there's a ricochet, and it hits you in the eye. It bounces off the top of the Ford and goes down among the grease there. What do you do? There's a sign that says, do not get out of your car. Those guys knocked on about $84 per toll booth. Every they just they, There's a guy that's got the grease concession. Did you know that? Just comes along all the quarters that you can find in the grease are his, and uh, oh, it's a big new bit. And, and so you throw the quarter into the basket, you drive out on the Merritt Parkway. How many people know the the derivation of the word toll? I mean, how come they call it a toll house? Why not call it a uh, a uh, bong house? Or, uh, yeah, why toll? Well, I'm going to tell you why toll. I'm this kid, see. I suddenly realize there's a, oh, it all ties up. There's no question about it. It's, uh, see, I'm, I'm promulgating the, the theory tonight of uh, what call, could be called the universality of the universal. <laughs> uh, <laughs> that's a fine academic uh, uh, non compass mentis type phrase. Uh, the universality of the universal. It all ties up together. See, I'm a kid. I'm sitting there, and... Uh, they have built this toll, you know, turnpike not far from the house. The first time, you know, I, I, I couldn't get on the road with my bike. The guy, there's a guy sitting in this little green house. Couldn't get on. And so that afternoon, or maybe two or three afternoons, you got my personal tragedy music there, please, a little personal tragedy music. I'm sitting there, and the, the, the heat is coming down, and I can hear the bugs outside, and I can hear the wind whistling through the Venetian blinds in second grade, and I'm reading this, this fable. I'm reading fable about these Norwegian green guys with the fin that sticks out of their back. And these guys have a fantastic life. They live under the bridges, see. And they've got this green, this green fin that sticks out. They are evil. And they've got webbed feet. 
and all the travelers that come along to this bridge uh, instantly are set upon by these green guys with the fins. They leap out and they say, fork over, else you shall not cross the toll gate. And you have to lay 50 pieces of ducat silver in that webbed foot. What were they called? Trolls. T-R-O-L-L-S, trolls. How many of you are aware that the modern toll gate comes from the Norwegian troll? of antiquity. That is quite true. And he was green. Have you noticed all them little houses are painted green? They wear green uniforms. And if you look carefully, if you could ever see their backs, they have a vestigial fin in the middle of their shirt. Break down. Now, how many of you knew that? How many of you knew that the troll, that the troll was the antecedent for the modern toll taker? That the troll made his scene by hiding under the bridges, and you'd have to fork over when you passed over the bridge. Did you know that? Of course, you, you know that. The troll, yeah. What? I, well, speaking of forking over, uh, we have uh, we've got to pay the piper here. Would you please uh, uh, bring me on some nervous uh, salesman? A little more of that personal music, please. That's it. That's very good. Yes, that's a uh, sales meeting music. They are about to discuss why Shepard not never did get around to the commercials on Tuesday night. And why he is getting to be more of a luxury every day. And not only that, he's getting snotty. Bring it up there. He's making all that dough, you know. So... <laughs> Look at that. Me and Hugh Hefner, I'll tell you. Uh, all right, we've got Rover with us, the Rover 2000. If you would like to be among the only few people in your neighborhood who actually impresses the troll as you approach him, uh, drive up to the next troll house you see in a Rover 2000, a magnificent machine, which could very well... Uh, incidentally, do you know that in the early trolls, the, the work with the early trolls, that if you had a certain stature, if you had a certain bearing and a certain quality, the troll would let you go over free. Have you noticed some guys get through them things free? You don't think that the state assemblyman of your favorite choice pays, do you? When he arrives, why do you think he's got that little bronze thing in the front? That's to let the trolls know that he's a big shot. All right? And everybody has to have a badge of rank. And in the early days, if you were the duke or the, you know, a local baron or something, and you arrived in front of those trolls, you didn't just arrive wearing kid tennis shoes. Not at all. That's why you wore ermine around the neck, to let the trolls know who was on the scene. It was like, you know, you'd made it. You went to OCS, and you are now an officer, and you got in free. Well, uh, a badge of rank today, par excellence, is the Rover 2000. I am not guaranteeing that they'll let you through the Merritt Turnpike or the Merritt Parkway free when you drive up in your Rover 2000 TC, but it could very well occur if you've got a sensitive troll working the meter there. So that's a Rover 2000. If you'd like to see a magnificent machine that really makes it all the way, you send us a note here to Rover, and we'll send you the technical specs and all the details. And my name is uh, Spot, and I'll be sure to get uh, all set in there. Now, hold it there. Any got it ready? It's Rover 2000. Now, we've completed our commercials. Uh, any of you interested in uh, in any other derivations of words? I have uh, several others. You know, well... Uh, because I did a lot of studying. You see, I'm, I, when I was a kid, I, I would think to those basic questions that got me nowhere. Actually, it got me a 1015 on this cockamamie radio station, which is no place. Had I accepted the words of my elders, really, 
Had I gone down the straight and narrow, today I would have been Johnny Carson in spades. I'm cuter. A lot cuter. Oh, sure. Absolutely. And I tap dance better. Did you ever see him try to tap dance? Did you see me tap dance? Listen to Matt back there yelling, because the only thing he, he relates to are tap dancers. Poor Matt. Pretty sad guy. Well, he likes those guys with the, with the aluminum teeth. He also likes guys with the neon smile. You know, they turn on. I'll never forget being backstage one day when Sammy Davis, I was the MC for a show with Sammy Davis, and he was putting in new batteries. And, uh, oh, yeah, well, you know, that big showbiz smile he's got? He was working it up. Yeah, he works it up. It takes him a good ten minutes. You know how Mickey Mantle works up with those big lead bats out there? You ought to see Sammy practicing smiles in front of the, you know, in, the, in front of the thing. He says, watch this one. Hey, there's no business like show business. There's no... I said, wait a minute, Sammy. Let's start from the top. Let's go from the top. There's a little leer coming into it. Okay. There's no business like show business. I said, now we're warming up. Let's go. And now, here he is. That guy you all been waiting for. Here he is. Here he comes out. It's Sammy Davis Jr. da 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 he comes on. Hello, folks. Yes, sir. Uh, yes, sir. That's my friend. Uh, that's my. He couldn't remember my name, and uh, you know, even with the new batteries. But uh, now, on the other hand, this Electra problem. I, I'm, I'm, I'm bugged by this because somehow I don't relate to Arrestes myself. Uh, have you noticed that they haven't named any major phenomena after Hamlet? Why? Well, yeah. He's, come see, come saw. He asked questions, to be or not to be. So there will never be a Hamlet effect. There will only be Hamlets or more omelets. Well, actually, the only, the only thing that... Are you aware that the omelet is, a, is derived from the word Hamlet? And why? Ham and eggs. Well, you don't think that they... That, which do you think came first, the word ham or Hamlet? Which do you think came first? Do you think in... in in 1597, when Shakespeare wrote Hamlet or was fooling around with the idea that they had something called ham? No, ham was a biblical phrase. Ham, we could go into this. We don't want to get all involved. It gets very deep and very, very involved. And it's too late at night. And there's too many other...